Hello and welcome to the Matthew 118 podcast, where we give you hot takes on Christmas music, but you for some reason have decided to listen to us. Breaking from our usual format today, we are doing a Christmas episode. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> So, Jeremy, why are we today the Matthew 118 podcast? Well, <clears throat> the book of Matthew declares in chapter 1, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And then it proceeds to tell the story. But uh, today we're going to give our hot takes on how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. So this is like the real Matthew 118 right here. <laughs> We're putting, we're extra putting Matthew 118 back into context. That's right. We have some sacred camels to slay today. If you thought your nativity scene was just 100% historically accurate, get ready to be destroyed. <laughs> right. So we are, we'll, we're going to start this episode out with uh, going through top 10 Christmas facts that aren't. Uh, and then after that, we're going to pivot in. And uh, we we had such a fun time arguing about the best Christmas song last episode that we decided we're going to do an entire segment on it. Best moment in the podcast. And it probably the most theologically informative as well. Like, you, you got to stay tuned for that one, folks. For sure. Well, let's just jump right into it. So, Jeremy, we have our top 10 Christmas facts that aren't here. So what is our first Christmas fact? Or we should, well, we need to come up with a new name. So these aren't facts about Christmas. They're just like lies. <laughs> yeah, facts that aren't. So like non-facts. Fake news, in other no. words. <laughs> these are alternative facts? Yeah, alternative facts, indeed. Yes. But I prefer Top to think of them as... Christmas alternative facts. Uh, I prefer to think of them as sacred camels that we are going to just mercilessly slaughter. Ten of them, one after the other. <laughs> Heavens. <laughs> just, you know, just All to right. get into the Christmas spirit, right? There it is. There it is. So what is our, so what's our, our first sacred camel here, Jeremy? All right. Get ready to be blown away. The Bible doesn't say that they rode on camels when they were going to Bethlehem and leaving it and going everywhere else. It doesn't say they rode on camels. <laughs> this one's kind of a gimme. <laughs> So the first sacred camel is we don't even know if there were camels involved. Yes. Now, okay, granted, this one's probably the stupidest of our 10, which is why it was my, maybe stupid of me to start with it. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, it only gets better from here, folks. Because they might, they, honestly, they probably did ride on camels because people did a lot back then when they were traveling long distances. But, you know, that's just one little, that's just getting the pump primed for like all the things that we assume about the Christmas story because we see pictures or flannel graphs of them, which the Bible doesn't say. What about number two, John? Well, our second sacred camel is that the uh, the wise men who came from the east were almost certainly not actually kings. Uh, they're uh, often called the you know the the three kings you know who sort of you know arrive with their gifts and all of that deal. Um, but it's it you know in the Bible they're not called kings. The uh, particular word that's used is uh, uh, magi, and uh, you know. It, it actually turns out magi is kind of hard to define exactly, particularly in English, like what that really means. Um, it, it probably refers to some kind of like astrology uh, that these individuals participated in, which would make sense if they're, you know, like looking toward the, the, the stars. Yeah, astrologists came in all sorts back in the day. Now, one of the things that's really interesting is, you know, astrology was kind of 
endemic in you know the first century uh, particularly in judaism like there was a lot of astrology that was kind of going on among even the jews back then and it's really interesting that particularly in matthew's account uh you know he describes them as magi the you know essentially astrologers but he doesn't really seem to be morally condemning the astrology that they're participating in it it's really interesting it's you know he's sort of like ah they're like astrologers but then like doesn't follow that up with like, oh, yeah, but remember, you can't do none of that astrology stuff. So just kind of a, an interesting little factoid for you right there. Um, it seems that like his Matthew in particular, his focus really is that he's wanting to highlight that these magi uh, have come and they desire to worship the king of the Jews. And that kind of being put up against Herod's response to the, the news of the Messiah being born, um, you know, namely that he wants to like kill all of the babies and uh <laughs> so it's like so there's sort of this this foil that's being set up of the magi who have come to worship the king and herod who tries to kill the king and that that's kind of really more of what matthew seems to be focusing on yeah it's interesting because the old testament condemns you know the kind of practices that we might assume these magi are involved in and it's a little hard to know for sure because this term is not extremely common um we do know they were looking up at the stars for some purpose, because right? um, that's part of the story. But uh, we don't know what other beliefs or practices they had. Uh, but one thing that's funny is, I mean, we're pretty darn confident they're not kings of any sort, because that's not mentioned, uh, even though that sort of became a tradition in the church. <clears throat> one thing that's really funny that I found uh, just while Googling around about the Magi is uh, this quote from John Calvin when he commented on the book of Matthew. And, uh, you know, John Calvin, obviously, one of the Protestant reformers, and he had his his strong beefs with the, the Catholic Church. Um, might have gone a little too far here, <laughs> but it's a really funny quote, so I just have to say it. Quote, but the most ridiculous contrivance of the papists on this subject is that those men were kings. <laughs> Beyond all doubt, they have been stupefied by a righteous judgment of God that all might laugh at their <laughs> gross ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So the next time you think that me and Jeremy dunk a little too hard on somebody, it will just point you back to this John Calvin quote. Dude, it's like ridiculous. This is so savage. <laughs> like, yeah, I agree with him that they're not kings. It's a, that is a wise observation. <laughs> and but like, come on, we I mean, John, you love the song We Three Kings. Apparently, John Calvin thinks you've been stupefied by a righteous judgment of God because you <laughs> It's like probably a little too hardcore on just the meaning of this one Greek word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe chill out there, Johnny boy. <laughs> John Calvin really bringing that Christmas spirit, right, of <laughs> of love and peace. Well, Jeremy, do we have any other sacred cows relating to the wise men? Sure. One of, and we actually sort of tackled this last week, but um, there weren't necessarily three of them. And I think that tradition comes from... The fact that there were three gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, but um, kind of like the tradition that they were kings over time, this tradition developed where we we even named them, even though Matthew doesn't name them. You know, Gaspar and Melchior and Balthasar, I think, are the, the three names that are traditional. And, you know, one of them has the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, and there's like an established uh, sort of, you know, purpose for all three of those gifts and what they signify. And none of that is really stated in the scriptures. And with the exception of probably, you know, what the gifts signify, I don't think any of it is really warranted <laughs> even by scripture. 
Um, I don't think, yeah, I really, I, I don't think there were three kings necessarily. I think that's a, a weird thing to uh, infer <laughs> from three gifts. Uh, but uh, I still love the song. Don't get me wrong, John. <laughs> well, we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about it later, I'm sure. All right. Uh, number four. Do you have a fourth camel? Yes. Continuing in our vein with the kings. Uh, it's sort of traditional in a lot of like nativities to have the 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 three the three kings you know hanging out right next to the manger where baby Jesus is you know sitting there they got their like gifts you know um, but in in all likelihood they did not visit Jesus um, immediately after his birth so the notion that the wise men would have brought gifts to a baby Jesus in a manger would have meant that Jesus was hanging out in that manger for a very very long time. Um, you know, Matthew just tells us that it's like after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the time of King Herod. Um, and so he's just saying it's like, you know, sometime after. But, you know, the, unlike the, you know, the shepherds who seem to kind of show up pretty soon after the birth, uh, it doesn't appear as though the, the, the Magi are quite as hip on the uptake, uh, which would also make sense because they got to travel a ways from the east uh to, to to get here and so it's again not likely that they showed up immediately yeah and they had this whole you know episode where they went to herod and then they went to bethlehem and there was probably some travel we don't really know how long um but yeah it's another one of those like kind of nativity uh things that doesn't that doesn't quite make sense however if you thought that was the most we were going to wreck your nativity scene whew. <laughs> just wait for a few a few camels from now <laughs> Yeah, and one of the other things that we can, you know, infer from the text to kind of bolster the claim that probably they didn't visit him immediately is that, you know, we're told in the text that, uh, you know, Herod finds out from them the time that the star appears. Uh, and then after that, his impetus is to kill all children two years and younger. And so likely Herod is doing a little bit of like back calculation to figure out like, hey, you know, what range of children do I need to go and, uh, you know, well, murder to make sure that I kill this king? Uh, you know, this uh, uh, challenger to my throne. And so in all likelihood, Jesus probably would have been more like on the order of a year old or maybe even a little bit older uh, for Herod to kind of, you know, cast that wide of a net uh, in his attempt to to kill Jesus. Yeah. And I know we mentioned in an earlier episode, we talked about the um, the voice that was heard in Rama, the weeping and, and great mourning of Rachel weeping for her children, uh, which is quoted in Matthew as a response to the event. And it's like, yeah, there's obviously like the big tragedy of that event that Herod did. Um, but kind of like kind of like you were alluding to, like what kind of absolute madman thinks that way? What kind of like uh, like where do you have to go in your heart to be like, well, I guess, you know, he's probably only a year old, but but let's kill like all of them two years old and under just to make sure we get him like. This is not related to our sacred camels. I just hate Herod. <laughs> He's such an awful person. Yeah, I mean, just like the and and I mean, and it, it works perfectly in the way that Matthew is portraying, you know, this like wicked, evil king who, you know, is seeking to destroy, you know, the people of God over against like Jesus, the good king who's coming to deliver the people of God. Well, Jeremy, so what is our fifth sacred uh, camel here? Is it anything to do with the wise men? Well, not exactly, uh, but we were just talking about his birth, and uh, it begs the question of, you know, was Jesus really born on December 25th? Because that's the day we're celebrating his birthday. Um, and so I guess our fifth sacred camel, and this one is probably pretty well known, um, 
But uh, Jesus was probably not born on December 25th. There's not, I guess the way to put it is, he certainly could have been born on December 25th, but there's not exactly more evidence for that day than any other day. Um, and this is because, like, the December 25th was settled on um, by the church, I think it was a few centuries after um, after Jesus' resurrection, and it became a tradition. And actually, scholars are divided as to why that day was even picked. There's, like, some speculation that it was uh, to, to, you know, uh, conflict with the pagan winter solstice. And so it was a strategy to get people to celebrate the Christian holiday instead of the pagan holiday. Um but then there's other, you know, there, there's some like biblical reasons why people um, would point to that as well. But uh, the text itself doesn't say. <laughs> In fact, you know, you've got shepherds grazing with their flocks at night. So winter, possibly not. <laughs> uh, so we don't even know the season. There's a lot of debate even over that. So if we don't even know the season, it's pretty unlikely that December 25th was the exact day. Well, Jeremy, there are plenty of other sacred camels that we have to get to here. You know, like, uh, uh, what about the this this inn that uh, uh, Mary and Joseph were attempting to stay in, uh, you know, when, when it was found that there was no room, right? It, clearly, this is like, you know, first century hotel, right? Uh, yeah, sorry, no. Uh, <laughs> sacred camel number six. <laughs> um, and this one blew my mind when I first learned this. But uh, so we're thinking about Luke chapter two, verse seven here, where it says that Mary laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's the King James version. And that's kind of the traditional story. You've probably heard it in variations of the nativity story where this like absolute jerkwad of a innkeeper is just like no woman about to give birth. You can't enter my house and have your, you can't enter my property and, and give birth to your baby as you're screaming in pain. And you're like, well, sorry, there's no innkeeper mentioned in the Bible and there's actually not an inn. Well, okay. In the Bible. <laughs> let me, let me walk that back. There's no <laughs> innkeeper mentioned in Luke chapter two. And there actually also isn't an inn mentioned in Luke chapter two, because it's a total mistranslation. So the Greek word kataluma can mean an inn. It, it, it's possible. <laughs> but what it really indicates is a more general term for a place of lodging. And it often it means like a guest room or an upper room. And the way that houses were constructed, I've actually seen, I've been to um, Israel and seen excavations of like first century houses. Um, and like there, there is an upper room where you can, where you can stay. Uh, and, and there's kind of, it's almost like a loft or like, you know, kind of in, in our contemporary modern houses, we would pull down on the string and then the attic slide would come down. You know, it's sort of like that you would, you would climb up into this upper room. And it's also mentioned like where the apostles gather in the book of Acts, uh, after, or before the day of Pentecost, after Jesus ascends into heaven. So guest rooms and upper rooms are kind of like places to gather. Right. And, um, Cataluma often indicates this kind of a room. And again, it can mean an inn, but this is probably not what it means because Luke later does use the more proper and specific term for an inn in chapter 10 when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. You might remember the Good Samaritan takes this man who falls into the hands of robbers. He takes him to an inn and, you know, pays the innkeeper. That's where the innkeeper is mentioned <laughs> elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, he pays the innkeeper and says, you know, if, if any extra money is incurred while I'm gone, charge that to me, you know. And, and that time, the more specific term for inn, pandokion, is used. 
And kind of the distinction here is, you know, any old person might have an upper room or a guest room, but likely they're not like charging people to come stay with them. And they're also probably being a little choosy about who they're letting into, you know, the upper story of their household. This is like, you know, as a matter of hospitality that like one of your relations or one of your kinsmen comes to town and you put them up in your upper room. This is in contradistinction with the idea of like an inn in this case in uh, later in the book of Luke with the Good Samaritan where you like somebody is running a business of hosting people where you like pay them and they'll like take any old person in as long as they can pay is kind of the idea. Yeah, it's a totally different scenario. I mean, like and and it's important to consider, too, that like. Why would Mary have even wanted to go to an inn for her first choice to give birth? Like, inns were literally, and you can actually see it in the Greek word pandokion with pan. The whole point of an inn is that anyone can stay there, and pan means, like, everything, everyone, um, all. All means all. <laughs> all means all, right? <laughs> and in this case, it's almost all literal, means all. right? All people can stay in this place. <laughs> so like a pandokion and, and a pandokion, you know, their whole point is to make money. So you're, you're going to let anybody stay as long as you have room. Right. Um, and like robberies were common there. I'm sure they were really dirty. This was before any sort of contemporary standard of of hospitality. And frankly, even nowadays, hotels aren't all that clean sometimes, you know, this uh, I mean, I <laughs> yeah, there's no like Yelp where you can give a one star review for, you know, a bad in experience. <laughs> Nazareth, uh, Nazareth <laughs> in I, I grant 1.0 stars. <laughs> and particularly if you've never been there before, you would have literally no way of knowing whether the inn was a good place to stay or not. Yeah, all you would have is word of mouth and maybe it was nighttime you know and uh so robberies were common at inns we know this uh and this is pretty common up up until i don't know recent in human history but but it was definitely true in the first century nobody would want to give birth in an inn so um <laughs> so yeah so there, there's a that's probably not what's in view here even though it is technically possible according to the greek word uh instead we're looking at an upper room uh that that is at a place at, at someone's home that they're going to for Mary to give birth at. And for whatever reason, the upper room, there's no room there. Uh, maybe it's just not big enough for like all the people who need to be there for the birthing to take place. Maybe it's not well suited for a birth, even though in other homes it might have been well suited um, and might have been a common location to give birth. Uh, it's There's not a ton of detail, but for whatever reason, there's no room in this in this Cataluma, which is you know, likely an upper room or a guest room. Yeah, like the place of hospitality. Yeah, it's a much more general term than in. That's the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> All right, so closely related to that last sacred camel um, is, oh, all right, get your nativity scenes out, get ready to sell them on eBay. Obsolete. We are destroying, <laughs> we are destroying your nativity scene with facts and logic here with our seventh <laughs> sacred camel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you want do you want to go ahead and say it john drop this truth bomb for sure we uh it, it is very unlikely that jesus was born in a stable now we do know that jesus was born in a manger that's actually given to us in the actual text uh and again in that, in that same passage in luke it's like he was born in a manger or he was set into a manger because there was no room for them in the you know the upper room this like lodging place um but it uh you know it's pretty unlikely that this is actually like a formalized stable that you know mary is actually giving birth in yeah the all that we know is that she was giving birth in a place typically intended for animals and because of our 
you know, different contexts, we think of like a stable um, or a barn or even, you know, or something like that. But actually, animals often lived in the house with their owners. That wasn't even slightly uh, unusual in the day. And it frankly still isn't, um, <laughs> depending on, you know, uh, where you live in the world. I mean, obviously, we have pets now. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about, you know, uh, cattle. But uh, so, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, if you've got 10 sheep and, you know, it's a lot easier to just pile the sheep into your house than, you know, deal with firewood and that kind of thing. So, you know, a bunch of warm bodies, you can stay warm in winter. Absolutely. Um, just pragmatic. So, yeah, like where could this place have been? It probably wasn't a stable. Um, it, it certainly did not need to be. Uh, but given given the other things we know, like it could just easily be a different part of this house. So this whole like idea we've gotten about the, the nativity story where there's no room in the inn. So you have to go to a stable is like this whole construction that doesn't isn't really warranted by what the text says, particularly when you know that an inn isn't in view. The whole story is more like this. They went to the house where they were planning on giving birth. Uh-oh, there's not room in the room where we were hoping to give birth in the in the place for lodging, right? Um, uh-oh, so we better go to where we can go. And that ended up being this place where there was a manger, which could have literally just been a different part of the house. So now other suggestions have been like a cave where there could have been animals uh kept there uh so so that's also a possibility um yeah we're, we're not 100 percent sure um i think the most simple explanation is that it was just a different part of the house uh where they happened to have animals staying just because of how like i don't know some of the you would expect to see some other details like uh, well, then they went to this cave where the animals were staying or whatever. But you don't see that. You just say, like, you know, she laid them in the manger because there was no room in the lodging place. So it, it, the most simple explanation, given what we know about first century culture and housing, is is just that. Like, we, we, would, we would see more details, I think, if there was a different story here. Um, but I admit that's a little bit of a guess. Right. And, and, and I think that also makes a little bit more sense if you imagine the person whose house they're cruising up to and they like show up and they're like, ah, hey, I'm about to give birth. And, you know, what's this person going to be like? Well, the upper room's a little full. So, you know, <laughs> go to this cave across town instead. <laughs> like, like we, we have such a low opinion of the hospitality of like first century Jews. The innkeeper is just like, no, you, you know, like you're literally your water broke, but I don't give a crap. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I think I, like <laughs> I think your explanation makes a lot more sense, Jeremy. If it's just like, okay, yeah, it's you know, we have a guest room, but for whatever reason it's not suited, probably full, maybe somebody's there, maybe we're using it as storage right now. But hey, we've got this other place in our house and it's where the animals are, so you know, it's warm and or maybe there's like more space or whatever the 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 thing is, but it would make a lot more sense for it to stay local to the place. For sure. Well, and you know, <laughs> Women who are in the process of labor are not super mobile. Like you, you can't, especially in those days, you didn't have cars, right? You maybe had camels. We don't know for sure, but <laughs> you maybe they maybe had camels. <laughs> there may there may have been. <laughs> but camels good luck involved. getting Mary up on the camel at this point, you know. <laughs> yeah, particularly. I, I mean, you know, and the other thing is, we're uh, uh, you know we're not even necessarily sure that she was like in labor when they cruised up to this place that they were trying to stay either. But I mean, if she was. <laughs> yeah good luck getting someone who's in labor on a camel like i i mean 
if you've ever like been with a woman who is in labor, there's no sense in which you're like, yeah, go balance on top of this camel for a little while. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's not in the cards. That's an entirely fair point, John. I am entirely assuming things and probably introducing more sacred camels that we're going to have to slay in the future. It does not say Mary was already in labor, <laughs> but I just... I, I, it's true. You get that sacred camel for free. But I, I just kind of like assume because, you know, there's not room. Like, well, make room. <laughs> you losers. She's in labor. Like, do what you need to do to make room. <laughs> so I guess I'm kind of reading a little into that and assuming like, oh, the baby's actually coming pretty soon and they know this, you know, like better just find what we have and <laughs> my my guess is probably she's not in labor and you know so they cruise up to the house and probably somebody's already staying in the guest house you know or you know something like that and so they get put up in a different part of the house and you know and then she goes into labor sometime in the near future but i it, it just doesn't seem super likely to me that joseph you know new husband that he is is being like, hey, this, you know, what's that? Your water broke? Now let's go cruising off to, <laughs> you know, Bethlehem. This sounds like a good idea. <laughs> sure. So in all likelihood, I, I have a higher opinion of Joseph than that he is like planning a big, you know, cross Israel trip while his wife is in labor. <laughs> well, I consider my my reconstruction of the event destroyed by your facts and logic because I think that makes a lot more <laughs> well, sense. Well, clarified, clarified. <laughs> but hey, so either way, I mean, we're we're all just spitballing right here because again, the text doesn't give us a lot of details. No, okay, and that's precisely my point. Uh, before we move on to our eighth sacred camel, that's kind of the point I'm trying to actually get across here is that there aren't a lot of details here, and that's actually important. Like the lack of detail is never an unimportant detail in and of itself. Um, we've constructed this whole story about how like, you know, Jesus was born like in the bitter cold in like this stable with like open air and, you know, like, like it was like the worst possible place. And there were horses prodding at Mary or whatever, like while she was trying to give birth, like we have this whole like construction of the story that is completely unwarranted by the text itself, which is really simple in its explanation. It just says like, Hey, there was this lodging place they were hoping to give birth. There wasn't room. So they had to do it in the manger instead. And you think about it, the manger wouldn't have been a bad choice for a grip. Like, just think about like the way that the manger looks, right? You can put hay in there and it's like, I don't know. It's not a bad choice, like all things considered. And and what we sort of see about this story is contrary to its portrayal as like, oh, this is like the worst way to give birth. Actually, the circumstances of Jesus' birth aren't that unusual or dire. Like they're probably in a house. They're probably, you know, uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem super eventful. There's not a ton of details. Um, the focus is not on like, I don't know, on how dire the circumstances were, although that will be the case after Jesus is born and Herod kills the children. Don't get me wrong. That's part of the Christmas story. But the birth itself is super usual. And and actually, I think that's the point. The focus is on how usual and humble and completely uneventful it is in many ways, right? Um, it's just like, oh, yeah, we wanted to give birth here, but we didn't. We gave birth here instead because circumstances didn't allow it. That's like super normal kind of like a way to talk about it. And Matthew and Luke give these details in just like one verse, one little verse. Um, and they don't really talk about it like it's that big of a deal. And so I, I don't know. And so since since Matthew and Luke don't 
consider it a big deal. I don't think we ought to either. I think the point is that it's not a big deal. <laughs> and here is this boy born who is supposedly, you know, the son of David, the king of the Jews, right? God incarnate. And he's just born in this house. <laughs> like, there's not nothing super special about it um, other than the, the, the circumstances that will happen as a result of his birth, which are obviously extraordinary. And we're even going to see that with, you know, the, the Magi showing up and the star, right? There's lots of phenomena that happen with it. But in many ways... The shepherds and the angels and all that. Absolutely. Kind of- yeah. It's, it's not that there aren't a... Mi- many miracles here of course the, the virgin birth itself it's just that like i think matthew and luke want us to be aware that like jesus was born like any other human there was labor there were there were considerations made about where to to give birth there were you know there was a process to this um mary laid him in a manger right and uh and that detail is there like where where did she put him and um i don't know it, it, to me it doesn't it doesn't uh, have this tone to it that we often attach to the manger and to the place of Jesus' birth. Do you agree? Because that's a bit of a controversial statement. I, maybe you don't agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you with that, Jeremy. I'm not sure I totally agree with with that 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 point that you're making because I think there are a lot of aspects that are extraordinary about the birth, like you know the angels and the magi and you know virgin birth and you know like all that kind of thing or the uh, uh, virgin birth, yeah, like and, and all of that kind of. Uh, detail to it but i think that you do bring up a good point of the the biblical authors don't give us a lot of details about it and you know like like you're saying the lack of detail is actually information in and of itself it's like if there was something important about telling the story of jesus that you know was there they would have told it to us and so the fact that it's left out tells us that the the actual birth itself we we have the details that we need for it and you know and i think you do make a point about it being like this is i like i i guess i'm not totally on board with the idea that what the biblical authors are trying to communicate is that this is almost passé in the way that the birth is actually happening i i think that there's enough around it of the like it is a hectic time of like the census is going on they're needing to travel there isn't like enough space for them and like like all of those other details of this isn't just like how any old birth goes but i think that you do bring up a good point of it's not like this is the worst kind of birth ever yeah well i think we do agree then and and maybe i just didn't phrase it well because my my point is that like as crazy as everything surrounding this story is the actual process of labor and you know getting the the boy out into the world is really not like that different or unusual than what we'd expect. The the only comment that they seem to be interested in pointing out is that, you know, the the ideal location for birthing was for whatever reason not available, so he was laid in a manger instead. That's like that seems to be the only detail we're given. Yeah, so it's like it's it's very much this no silver spoon kind of thing, but not like a worst ever kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, and it definitely seems like we sometimes make it out that way. And and even in songs that I love, like Away in a Manger you know, no crib for a bed, uh, right? And and like the cattle are lowing, which we'll get to in a second, um, the cattle that probably weren't there. Uh, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but like I don't know. It, it, when all things considered, a manger is a place to lay your head. Like, it, <laughs> I don't know. There's there's ways to to think that it, that it could have been much worse. And especially given that this was before modern medicine, labor was terrible 
anyways. I mean, it still is, but but like you know, it, obviously it was a is a horrifying circumstance for for any you know pregnant woman to go through. But um, but yeah, I just the actual process of birth and where they were just doesn't seem like the focus to me of this story. But that's kind of on, the only real point I'm making. <laughs> All right. I, I hear you with that, Jeremy. But you, you kind of teased the next sacred camel for us. So how about you just you, you lead us right into that one, too? Right. OK. Number eight. There may or may not have been farm animals nearby or cattle <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I mean, which, OK, right, that kind of sounds like we're contradicting ourselves because we just said that, they you know, Jesus certainly was born in a place where the animals were kept. There was a manger there. Right. We have not destroyed that part of the nativity scene yet. So why do we say this? Why do we say there may or may not have been farm animals nearby? Well, you know, the basically, you know, the Bible says, you know, that he was put in a manger. So ostensibly it's a place where usually animals might be kept, but it doesn't actually say that the animals were there at the time. And again, I, I think it sort of plays into this whole like stable idea and terrible innkeeper idea of like, ah, oh, just go out next to that ox over there and you can lean against him if you need to while you're pushing this baby out. And like, I, I don't know, that's absolutely <laughs> inconceivable to me. Uh, and again, I like in in our more probable construction of where they like cruise up to this place, they still have a few days before Mary goes into labor, there's not a lot of space and they're just kind of making it work. I mean... It would make sense to me that, like, when Mary's water did break, that they'd be like, okay, let's just shuffle these animals over to somebody else's house for a little while. Keep the manger. That's a convenient place to put him when he's, you know, when he's among us. Uh, and so, it, anyway, it's like he's put in a manger, but I kind of almost hear this detail as in a, like, they were practicing ingenuity Rather than saying like, yeah, and there was an ox right there actively eating the hay out of the manger next to Jesus's head. Yeah, well, okay, so so John, you have a cat around the house, right? Two of them, in fact. Um, and you just had a baby, and I'm sure I'm sure when you had newborn Elisha, you didn't just like let the cat paw away at Elisha. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, well, no, no, actually, yeah, we we have a little cat bed, and we'd often just put. Uh, Elisha down into the cat bed next to both of our cats and you know they do the kneading thing with the claws and it helped exfoliate his scalp a little bit no no is it... <laughs> yeah so like presumably and we don't again we don't know for sure either way but you know if there was anybody around the house to help out I'm sure they're like hey maybe I'll like take some of this cattle elsewhere <laughs> like i don't Again, know like, like get at least a few of these oxen out of your hair mary like you've got enough on your plate i don't know seriously <laughs> it's like again i have a much higher opinion of joseph than that he was just like letting cattle hang out next to his uh, you know wife who's in labor <laughs> right like presumably they would have had some place to put the animals we don't know for sure but uh but yeah like it, it's another part of the story that isn't exactly um warranted biblically <laughs> although you can unlike some of these other ones i can see why that became part of the story for sure um like yeah <laughs> admittedly we don't know either way and and maybe there wasn't another place to put the animals you know so <laughs> sure yeah i mean maybe, maybe there were animals there but it, yeah we're just not told one way or the other but speaking of like highly improbable things uh, Jeremy, what's our what's our ninth sacred camel? Well, I know you really like this one, so why don't you go ahead and and state it for sure? Well, <laughs> this one is the uh uh, uh it, it's from away in a manger, right? Yes. Um, 
yeah and it's the the line of like uh you know no crying he makes like <laughs> this idea that jesus is born as an infant and like and he's just so sweet and perfect and he doesn't even cry and <laughs> it's just like it's so whoever stupid. wrote that song is like have you ever met a newborn like <laughs> Like, what are you talking about? I do love it because it, it, I mean, I hate it. Never mind. I hate it. So here's the thing. I love Away in a Manger. I sing it to my son every night that I get to put him down for bed. Like, and Silent Night. I sing those two songs in, now that we're in the Advent season. It is such a great song. And I love the, I love the last verse in particular. Um, bless all the dear children in thy tender care and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. So I don't want to be too harsh on Mr. Away in a Manger, whoever wrote that song. Um, Mr. Manger. Mr. Manger, yeah. Mr. A Way Manger. <laughs> there we go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's such a stupid line. Oh my goodness. <laughs> like that whole, like the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. Wait, we don't know the cattle were there. <laughs> uh but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, no, especially if cattle are lowing right next to him. Like, <laughs> like how is that baby going to sleep with them cattle lowing? Yeah, like, Josiah isn't even a newborn anymore, but uh, sometimes he just randomly wakes up and just, like, screams immediately. I don't know if Elisha does this. Like, sometimes he has a really calm awakening where he'll just go, eh. <laughs> and then we'll come get him you know and that, that happens probably 70 percent of the time but but every but sometimes once in a while he, just he comes out you know kicking <laughs> yeah like maybe he had a nightmare or he's in pain or something but like babies don't wake up calmly i mean they sleep pretty good um at least like it's it can be hard to wake them up but if they wake up they're usually pretty mad about it <laughs> so <laughs> well and, and the other and the other thing about like no crying he makes is like it like crying is the way that newborns communicate i mean it's like it's all they got like what like how did you, you know i mean okay so even if you you know think of like well no but jesus is perfect and so he doesn't cry which it's like i mean first of all i'm not sure i buy that i mean kind of the whole point is that he was here to like you know experience what you know like to live the experience of being a human like that's kind of part of the deal with the incarnation and so I mean, like, I I think Jesus felt sad sometimes. So, like, the idea of him crying. And we're even told in, in John 11.35. Yeah, John 11.35. Like, Jesus did cry. <laughs> if he cried as, a, as an adult, like, surely he could cry as an infant. And again, like, birth is not, like, a super nice experience. So, <laughs> it's like a little crying, I think, would be, you know, warranted even for the Son of God, right? You know? <laughs> but even if you're in that... Well, and again, I like the point but, that you made that that, like, crying is not necessarily even for babies, like a, a sign of the fall. It's just a method of communication. I know for parents of newborns, it feels like that. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. And it's like, and and Mary and Joseph would be depending upon infant Jesus's cries to know when they needed to feed him and when he was awake and, you know, like all of those kinds of things. I certainly, uh, I certainly agree. And, and I would substitute here perhaps the lyrics of a different Christmas song that nobody knows because it's a choral song by Benjamin Britten, uh, the song This Little Babe, uh, which is a metaphor of, of, it's like a warfare metaphor song, where it talks about how Jesus, like, Jesus's actions as a baby are cries of warfare against, like, Satan. <laughs> it's a pretty sick song. Um, it, it's awesome. But, like, there's one line, with tears he fights and wins the field. Oh, that is, that's dope. <laughs> his, his battering shots are babish cries. His, uh, Oh, sorry. I can't remember the next line. 
his battering shots are babish cries. His something are weeping eyes. Anyways, it's really, really great. Um, oh, that's so good. Right. So, so Jesus is humanity, which includes all of the, the weeping and the tears as an adult and as a baby, is part of his rallying cry of war, total war against sin and demons. And like, to, so to take away the crying of baby Jesus is to take away his humanity, which is to take away our hope of salvation. And, you know, I don't want to accuse Mr. A. Wayne Manger of that. He was probably just trying to write a cute little song to <laughs> rock your baby to sleep with. But <laughs> nevertheless, he has committed high treason. <laughs> high theology treason. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I tend to change the line to, like, little Lord Jesus, much crying he makes when I sing it to, to Josiah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, our, I'll, I'll take that transition right there of uh, for our last sacred camel. Uh, and that is, you know, speaking of things that we sort of take creative license with that are pretty improbable. Uh, there's another famous song called Little Drummer Boy. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is just like super biblical, super biblical, except I just find it highly improbable that Joseph would allow a kid with a drum anywhere near his postpartum wife and infant. <laughs> it's just like, that's no. And second, even if he did, the idea that Jesus would smile at that drummer is like, have you met a newborn? They don't smile. It takes them like months. <laughs> Yeah, I think the little drummer boy probably violates every single one of the ten sacred camels we've <laughs> like. Yeah, we actually based all of our camels off of <laughs> little drummer boy. Yeah, okay, it probably doesn't mention camels in that in that song, but other than that, it might violate all of them. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, and 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 while we while we don't want to dunk on away in the manger, we do kind of want to dunk on <laughs> little drummer. <laughs> Like, why not? It deserves it. Because, because again, like, and maybe the point that we should make here is we don't really, you know, we don't have a problem with people taking creative license with the stories and songs that they're writing. Like, I I like to affectionately call hymns, uh, like, biblical fan fiction, um, (laughs) where, (laughs) you know, it's like it's your opportunity to, like, you know, you know, retell, like, tell the story again and kind of, like, put it in a new form. And so it's totally fine to, like, take creative license. But when you're doing that creative license... You know, maybe at least like do it for a good like theological meaning, <laughs> not just like this like thing at the end where it's like I I beat my drum with a stick and then a baby <laughs> smiled at me. It's like okay, and I actually really like the song. I think it's a good like tune, but I just I it's true. The words are so stupid. The whole thing is so. This really doesn't count as a sacred camel because I don't think anyone actually thinks this story happened. <laughs> like <laughs> I maybe don't know, some people Jeremy. are super illiterate, like not Christians at all. Um, super illiterate in the Bible, but I think everyone knows this is a creative retelling. <laughs> but still, it, it's not even a sensible one, right? Again, like, <laughs> it's like, what would Joseph and Mary do if this kid just shows up, like hitting a drum? <laughs> man we finally got these shepherds out of here so that mary can go to sleep and then dump 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 (laughs) like coming in the door it's true because when you have a newborn like people bring meals to you (laughs) people bring meals to you and they're super nice and like almost all the time 
they have like the the awareness that like oh I should come help the the couple dealing with their newborn child and then visit for five minutes and leave because they're tired you know they need some time alone and people generally understand that but maybe you've got like one person who doesn't understand that let's say and they just show up and they're like there for an hour and you're like oh my goodness like <laughs> we thank you for the food but maybe you know come back another time right <laughs> in a few weeks when we're Jeremy maybe this is a metaphor. For the really irritating person who visits Mary and Joseph. And it's like, it's a constant (laughs) drumbeat that they just won't leave. And they're there so long that Jesus stops being a newborn and can start smiling. Well, and maybe it's just part of his humanity too, right? This is part of what it means to be the incarnate son of God is you just have that one jerk who shows up beating a drum while you're trying to nap and wakes you up and then you start crying because of course you're a real human and and you cry um unlike a way in a manger thinks it works and (laughs) so yeah so i don't know i just i imagine mary glaring at at this guy while jesus smiles at him because she's like seriously get out of here (laughs) yeah jesus smiles mary and joseph glare (laughs) you have overextended your first century jewish hospitality quota dear sir with your drum (laughs) (laughs) It's time for you to leave now, kid. <laughs> Do you think we've beaten this dead drum enough yet? <laughs> ah, there we go. Well, speaking of Christmas songs, I think this brings us into our next segment where uh, <laughs> this is like we said, we had so much fun talking about Christmas songs for our our uh, monikers last week that we just wanted to turn it into a whole section. So I hope you're ready for more discussion of Christmas hymns. Well, let's just start, I guess, by recapping our um, heated dispute from last episode. Like, what are the best the best Christmas hymns? And, and I stated the objective truth, which is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And uh, John dared to dispute <laughs> what is just objective fact uh, with We Three Kings. <laughs> so, okay, well, give give us a refresher, Jeremy. What's your pitch for why O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is the best Christmas Advent song? Yeah, uh, Christmas, Advent, whatever, all together, in my opinion. Um, o Come, O Come, Emmanuel is just fantastic because it, it allows us as the church to draw into the expectant waiting of the Messiah for his first coming that the Jewish people were were experiencing, right? The mourning and lonely exile here, right? Until the Son of God appear. And and, and that refers to the, the suffering that the people felt and, and indeed the suffering that continues into Herod's slaying of the boys and the various just trials and tribulations that his people came through. And, and of course, part of that was their own sin and the rejection of God's law, which we see in the books of you know Samuel and Kings. And so I really like um, <clears throat> that O Come, O Come, Emmanuel draws us into Advent as it must have felt to the people, the faithful people of Israel in Jesus' day. But then it also extends it to us as the church today. And I, I, I like that because I think it gets the most into the spirit of what Christmas is about. It's also a very excellent tune, just <clears throat> like really, really draws out the meaning of the words with its kind of like minor key um it really feels like exile. It feels like pain. It feels like suffering. And then the rejoice, rejoice, right? And then it comes out in that big, like, uh, you go up the octave, right? Um, to to the big rejoice. And then and then it ends, the verse, kind of still. And, and it goes back to the, the minor, like, uh, sad part of it. So <clears throat> that's not a super, like, clever musical analysis, but I just like its feel, how it, uh, how it, 
contrasts those two emotions, but it allows itself to stay in that sadness, right? Because we as the church are still waiting for the second coming of the Messiah. We're like still, we're, we're with them. We're groaning. We're, we're asking the Lord to come again. And so, I, yeah, I think there's so many little threads to it that draw me into what this season's about and what the incarnation's about. Yeah, it's so good. Just so, so good. Um, not to hate on We Three Kings, though. No, no. And, 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 I, and I also really, really like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, but if, if we're picking favorite songs, um, I, now that I've had some time to think about it, I actually, there's two that I think might be tied. So one of them is We Three Kings. And, and I'll give you the pitch for why it's so great. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with the same kind of thing you were talking about there of there's a lot about the song that it's just really constructed really well. Like, I love that the verses are in this um, kind of like flowing rhythmic minor key. I feel like the, you know, Advent and Christmas just you need to be in a minor key. I mean, it's like it's dark. You're like waiting. You're like looking toward the, you know, like the, the minor key, like has you like looking toward resolution in, you know, onto a major chord, but you just like, you're not there yet. You're just like waiting for the resolution. But in, you know, We Three Kings, you do get it resolving back into like major, same kind of thing with O Come O Come Emmanuel of the, oh, you know, and then you're like on kind of some nice major notes of like, you know, Star of Wonder, Star of Night. And, 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 and actually kind of that resolving into the chorus, I really love for We Three Kings in part because it is a chorus of a hymn that actually does the thing that a chorus is supposed to do. Uh, <laughs> and that is that the, the chorus is, it, it's this refrain that you come back to again and again after each of the verses. And the purpose is to kind of uh, like tie the whole narrative of the song together and give you this through line to, to tie one verse to the other. And so for We Three Kings, like I'll, I'll be the first to admit, it's like mostly extra biblical, but I think the theology is really on point where you, you know, what, what the, you know, each of the verses is kind of enunciating these like different truths about who Jesus is, that he is like, you know, the, the gift of the gold marks him as a king, the gift of, of uh, frankincense marks him as God, and the gift of myrrh, you know, points toward his eventual death. And that like those three things together comprise like, you know, who Jesus is. But the chorus you know, is what I think makes it actually a Christmas song is that the whole thing is that you are, you know, you're, you're in the mindset of one of the, you know, Magi who is like following this star and you were like looking toward this light, which signifies a true light that you are actually seeking. So it's, you know, you know, guide us to thy perfect light is the way that the chorus ends. And so it's all of this, like looking toward the person of Jesus that you are like, seeking after him and and you know you know you you like name who he is in the verses and then you are reminded that we are like looking toward uh, a, a rival with jesus uh in the end and so for, kind of for all of those reasons we three kings is like one of my favorites yeah and you know you're you're entitled to your your opinion john but at the end of the day the only one of the three words of the title that is true is we <laughs> because there weren't three and they weren't kings so you have to deal with that at the end of the day it's true <laughs> but like I, but like we said before hymns are biblical fan fiction it's okay to take creative license as long as you're reinforcing the like the actual theology of scripture you know <laughs> we'll go with that no i agree with you i, I really do agree with you but <laughs> i love the song if you don't like my uh version you know we three kings is that perhaps i will propose another christmas song 
as maybe actually the best one. All right, <laughs> let's hear it. So my proposal, my close second is going to be uh, the song of the father's love begotten. Um, and this one is like not a super well known one, but I, I don't really know why, because it's super cool. Um, and and I, I really love it for kind of ac- actually the exact same reasons that I love We Three Kings. It's in this nice, uh, it's got like a lot of minor chords to it. And so you kind of sit thematically in the right uh, kind of space there. Um, and, and you know, if, if you're not familiar with the song, it kind of like each one of the verses goes through and, and talks about like a different aspect of God or Jesus or the Christmas story. And each of the verses ends with the refrain evermore and evermore. So, you know, the first, uh, you know, verse ends with, you know, Jesus, you know, that he is uh, uh, like Alpha and Omega, um, you know, and that he is the source of all things and he's the ending of all things evermore and evermore. Uh, and kind of this idea of like Christ, you know, being this eternal God. Uh, but then in the the second verse, you get into this, you know, starting into the Christmas story of, you know, oh, that birth forever blessed when the virgin full of grace by the Holy Ghost conceiving bore the vir- bore the savior of our race. And then it goes into, you know, and the babe, the world's redeemer first revealed his sacred face. And then you get the refrain again, evermore and evermore. And so it kind of like loops you around that like there is this eternity that is Christ as God. But then there's the second reality of like Jesus, his face being revealed, like in the incarnation that like the face of God has been revealed to us. And now it is also revealed into eternity as well, that it like it continues even as God is the eternal God. Now his face is revealed to us in eternity as well. And 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 so that kind of idea, the rest of the verses do the same kind of thing where it, it talks about another idea and that refrain of evermore and evermore kind of takes on a new flavor each time you get to the end of one of the verses. And it's kind of indicating something else that is true and that's kind of like connected to Christ as like living forever. And so it's it's just it's a very, very well done song and I love it a lot. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with it. I think I, like I'm kind of familiar with it, but I'm going to have to go listen to it. Thanks for the uh, recommendation, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will make a recommendation. There is a very good version of it by the band uh, New Scottish Hymns. So the new Scottish hymns band, uh, they do a version of, of the father's love begotten that is on point. It's very good. Well, I'm going to have to check that out. Maybe you should link that. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Fantastic. Maybe going on from there, uh, let's uh, let's talk about which ones are the worst. <laughs> so we just talked about the best. We got a few more like good ones to talk about. Um, I got a real hot take here, and like we're going to lose subscribers because of this take. So this is a spicy one, ladies and gentlemen. My least favorite song, this is sort of cheating because I actually really love this song, but it's a, a specific, a specific uh, I guess, context in which it is performed. And that would be the song, Oh Holy Night. When it is sung congregationally. <laughs> that is my least favorite Christmas song. And, uh, oh, man. Everybody always puts the breath in the middle of like that last line. It just is so painful. Now, we're specifically talking about like Christian Christmas hymns here. Um, there are all sorts of secular Christmas songs that are way worse than <laughs> Oh Holy Night sung congregationally. But I like most Christian like Christmas hymns. Uh, including this one. It's fantastic. The, oh man, I love Oh Holy Night. And that's why I hate it when it's sung congregationally because it is not intended for that. Um, you, you, you need someone who has some like vocal training. Yeah, it is a choral song or a solo. Um, or I guess you can probably do it in a small like, you know, uh, ensemble. I haven't necessarily seen it done that way. But um, I sang it in choir growing up and I've heard some fantastic like operatic 
renditions of it by soloists. It's a lovely song, with fantastic lyrics. Um, I especially love the... Oh, yeah. Like the, yeah. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. It really has like a... It has a um, almost a post-millennial heft to it, right? It has like a, like the the world will be will submit to Christ, right? It, it must. He's the Lord. Ever ever praise we, right? Um, anyways, so it, it has this heft to it, both in its in, in its like musical composition as well as its lyrics. Uh, so I love it, but it's just like it has such a large vocal range and kind of complicated rhythms in places as far as like congregational hymns go there's lots of like little places where the rhythm can vary uh because the syllables don't exactly align the same in each verse and it's just there's lots of places where um when it's done congregationally the congregation doesn't know how to follow it and uh and they certainly can't sing it there is no key you can pick where there won't be a significant percentage of the congregation that is incapable of hitting the notes um because that's a huge range uh so anyways for all those reasons and like yeah so anyone who's listening from trinitas i know we do it at trinitas i uh i can't do it <laughs> i cannot handle this song congregationally. <laughs> um and i'm a trained singer so like for me it's it's a little bit harder i guess i can hit the notes um but it's just it's not suited for it Ooh, throw down no, no, no. <laughs> sorry sorry i didn't i didn't intend that to come across that way what i'm saying is like because i'm a trained singer i know it doesn't work to do it <laughs> oh okay 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 I, I see what you're saying yeah like, like there's all sorts of reasons i know it doesn't work um and you know anyways no, nothing uh n- no offense intended to anybody but uh my honorable mention so if i have to pick one i i'm not, I'm not sure that i consider it that much of a christian song but mary did you know <laughs> i hate that one <laughs> because mary did know it was literally told to her yeah she she, she was aware you know <laughs> Like G- Gabriel informed her explicitly <laughs> in the Bible, like, so I just hate the title. <laughs> like the whole song is like in this format. Mary, did you know that Jesus was who he was? Like, kinda. Yeah. Yes. Yes, she did. <laughs> so there's my honorable mention. I had to, had to point it out. But uh, thanks for letting me rant about a holy night. What about you, John? <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So my my least favorite Christmas hymns. Uh, well, I mean, my least favorite like Christmas song is <laughs> might be Little Drummer Boy. <laughs> well, you already just, talked about it. <laughs> I know, I know. But maybe maybe a close second would be the first Noel. Uh, <laughs> and the, the the reason, okay, and, and the first Noel, it's like it actually does a really good job of telling the Christmas story of it just kind of like goes through all the major texts and gives you all of the elements of like, this is the Christmas story. Jesus was born, you know, it like does the whole thing, right? talks about the angels and the shepherds and you know the whole thing right but the problem that i have with the song is it's like it just is a bunch of it's like eight really short verses that like the 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 tune is just it gets monotonous by the time you're on like verse seven and and the other thing is especially when it's sung congregationally like i'm people you know, if, if if you haven't ever, like, been to a church that does, like, congregational hymn singing, but there's, like, a thing that happens of a natural slowing down of the tempo as you, like, go through <laughs> verses. It just it just happens when, when you get a bunch of people who are just, like, you know, singing together. Is Typically, the tempo slows down a little bit. And so you can't start the first Noel fast enough to have it still be at a good tempo by the time you're on verse 8. <laughs> So it just like it just drags 
and drags and it, so i think the faster you start it the more likely it is to end up slow because there's a lot of words and so people are not going to catch up you know when you <laughs> if you might try to go too quick with it for sure well okay so i i will say listener audience if any of you out there know of a good recorded version of the first noel that like has all the verses maybe has some good instrumentation it doesn't drag send it to us at the john 315 podcast at gmail.com i'm open to have my having my mind changed on this one but i have yet to hear a good version of the first noel so feel free to send them to me and i will repent later if someone manages to send us a good version of it. Here's the issue, John. And I, I have a specific bone to pick with you because I liked this song until you told me that you thought it was terrible. And then I realized that you were right <laughs> because I couldn't like, this was years ago. I remember you telling me this, like <laughs> you were like, yeah, the first Noel sucks, man. And I'm like, what? No, not my little boy. The first Noel, my favorite song. Not really. It never was my favorite, but, but like now I can't unhear it. And it's true. I, I, I hesitate to say I might go a step further than you. I don't think there probably is a good recorded version of it, even though I'm sure very musically competent people have done it because the song is just bad. <laughs> it's, it's, it's got great words. It tells the Christmas story, but it's just... It's just like all stepwise up and down. Um, like, And the only jumps from pitch are like you know, the first to the fifth, right? <laughs> it's just this really obnoxious meandering tune. Um, and, you know, you just wish that the words could be put to a better tune. <laughs> but, uh, and even the cor the chorus is similar to the verse. <laughs> so you still have like that obnoxious, mi re do, re mi fa so, la di da di da so. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. I need a little more variation in my singing. For sure. Somewhere between the first Noel and Oh Holy Night. That's kind of like the sweet spot. <laughs> Maybe like O Come O Come Emmanuel. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Un underrated. So we talked about the best and the worst. What about underrated? Uh, my pick for this is one I actually don't think I really knew all that well until this year, but we've been singing it at, uh, at my church. Uh, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. I, I think I'd heard it before, but... Uh, but yeah, there's some really fantastic uh, songs in it. Uh, sorry, some some fantastic verses in it, let me say. It's a meta song. <laughs> yeah, meta song. This song's within a song. Uh, but like, listen to this. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for with blessing in his hand. Christ our God to earth descendeth our full homage to demand. Oh, that is so good. Oh, it's so good. Um, so much packed. Yeah, and it's got the nice, like, minor key, like, let all mortal flesh keep silence. It's like this really, oh, man, it's like, we better be silent because Christ is coming and that's a serious matter. And and I love it when hymns really take that seriously, the weightiness of, of the glory of God. And, and, you know, joyful tunes are also perfectly, perfectly um, acceptable to sing to God. But I like the ones that kind of, like, really make you... Um, like arrest your attention and you're like, Oh goodness. Like who is this person I'm coming to worship? Do I even want to be around him? It's scary. You know, like, <laughs> like uh, ponder nothing earthly minded goodness. Like that's, that's a tall ask, you know? Um, and that I especially love the last verse, uh, which when we do it at, at, uh, at my church, uh, Michael, our, our musician, uh, really makes this last verse pop. And I love it. 
but uh, but it, it goes like this. At his feet, the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence, as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. Oh, man. Yeah, just like the image of glo- like the glorious Christ. That's just, oh, it's so good. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I love it when Christmas hymns take that, take this like, you know, we're talking about the incarnation, right? And we, we, there's this like meta theme of this humble boy is actually the king of the universe, right? He's, he's the God who created us and, and all of this. And, and so I love that this, this last verse just pops off into this, like the angels can't even look at the glory. Um, all they can do is cry out endlessly for all eternity praises to, to this, this boy, <laughs> right? This boy in the manger that we're, that we're uh, praising. I especially love once in Royal David city also does that um, with like the, not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, we shall see him, but in heaven at God's right hand on high where like stars, his children crowned all in white shall wait around. And it's like this. Yeah. Like it starts out with this humble circumstances and it ends with uh, like God at, you know, him being at the right hand of God and all who follow him are, you know, co uh rulers with him like in white like perfect purity yeah like yes and standing around his yeah throne. yeah it's yeah. just crazy like uh you just don't get hymns like this the rest of the year that's for sure well what about you what's your most underrated yeah my my most underrated uh uh christmas hymn probably it would be uh hail to the lord's anointed um which uh, th- this one it's actually on the same al the, the same uh uh new scottish hymns uh album that i that i referenced before um, and I had not heard it until I listened to this album. Um, and so, so hail to the Lord's anointed. It's, uh, uh, well, as the, as the, the name of the song would, would suggest, it's all about like hailing Christ, uh, as our King and, and kind of, as you like go through the verses of the song, it, it talks about different aspects of like Christ's coming into the world, but in particular, it ends, uh, with that same kind of like glorious image of like Christ as the ruling King. And and that and that's the thing that I really love about this hymn is that you 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 start with like you know Christ coming into the world and you end with him like ruling and reigning over all things and um you know in particular it's like the last verse it like gets me every time uh, it's like you know it's like fifty fifty whether I can finish the last verse without tearing up it's just so good and uh um you know it, it says uh, like uh, over every foe victorious he on his throne shall rest. From age to age more glorious, all blessing and all blessed. The tide of time shall never his covenant remove. His name shall stand forever, and that name to us is love. And it, oh, it's just this, like, awesome picture of, like, Christ, like you know, resting on his throne, that, like, all of his enemies have been defeated, and that he is will reign there for eternity, and because he is reigning there for eternity... His like covenant that he has made with us will also stand forever. And so that like that Christ, you know, he has given this name. You, you see it in like Philippians 2. He's given the name that is above every name, every name. <clears throat> so that the name of Jesus, every, you know, knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And so there's this idea of like Christ, you know, being the given the name of the king, like, you know, the one who rules. But that for us who are his people the name that we will know Christ by is love itself. And it's just like such an awesome ending to a song. I love it so much. 
it's indeed fantastic. I have to, I have to give you points on that choice. So I recommend it to any, anybody as well. For sure. But I, I hadn't heard of uh, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. I'm going to have to check that one out. Uh, you, we'll, we'll put a, a link to a good rendition of it in the show notes as well. Yes, we'll do. Well, let's close this off with, uh, I mean, we've been talking about lots of heady theological topics uh, today, actually more more so than maybe even in some other episodes, which is kind of funny because we're just talking about music. But uh, hey, music is is an important part of the church and, uh, you know, singing together is is important. Uh, write a letter to your governor, uh, <laughs> telling him that <laughs> or her. Um, but, uh, what about best and worst non-Christian Christmas songs? <laughs> All right, Jeremy, uh, show us what, what's, what are, what are the best and worst non-Christian Christmas songs? Well, the best has to be Carol of the Bells because I mean, obviously <laughs> Like anyone who's seen anyone who's seen Home Alone knows that, like the super awesome rendition. Like, yeah, like Kevin McAllister is like in the church. Right. And then he's talking to the, the dude who he thinks is scary. And then he finds out he's a, he's an OK dude. And then he's like, oh, now I got to go home and like brutally murder the two robbers who are trying to hurt me with like 73 traps that would kill any normal adult human <laughs> it's being. It's such a brutal. And movie. then like then like the John Williams score like flies in and it's like do 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 do. And then he goes home and he like, you know, sets. I don't know. Crazy movie. Home Alone. Gotta watch <laughs> it's it. It's a wild ride. I uh, haven't watched it yet this year. <laughs> yeah. Like when I hear Carol of the Bells these days, I just think of like incredibly violent death traps. <laughs> That's what makes it the best Christmas song. <laughs> yeah. Christmas is here. <laughs> bringing good cheer to young and old, meek and the bold. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's, there's some pretty great YouTube videos about like uh, exactly like how many times those robbers should have died. In the Home Alone movies. For me, the best non-Christian Christmas song. I would say there is not one. If it's not about Jesus, it's not a Christmas song. There are no non-Christian Christmas songs. Mic drop. Checkmate, atheists. (laughs) Okay, but seriously, though, what is it? No, 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 no. Like we said before, where you start determines where you're going to end. Uh, I, I refuse to, to to play in this world and grant to you the, uh, uh, you know, the, the 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 end of the argument from the beginning. It's like I, I can't I can't argue with you on the standpoint of assuming that Christmas songs are not about Jesus. Well, OK, but what about something like Deck the Halls? You know, like something that's just about the joy and merriment of the season, you know, and it's not like non-Christian. It's not anti-Christian, but it isn't like a hymn. It's just a song about Christmas. Well, then it's it's not a Christmas. It's just a holiday song. It's just a festive song. It's not a Christmas song. What? That's ridiculous. Of course, Deck the Halls is a Christmas song. Mm-mm. Nope. Get out of here. Nope, nope. Just festive, Jingle Bells. Just holiday. Jingle Bells isn't... Carol of the Bells isn't a Christmas song? Nope. Whatever. (laughs) All right. I dispute this even stronger than our We Three Kings. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, I dispute. That's ridiculous. Does this mean you'll grant me We Three Kings? Uh, Sure, if you'll grant me this one. You you didn't even come up with one, so I clearly win in this category. (laughs) Carol of the Bells wins. You're not even playing the game. Okay, so so Jonathan Van Schenk, what is the best non-Christian holiday song? There we go. Okay, <laughs> I can play this game. <laughs> uh, well, I wasn't expecting you to actually push the points, so now I need to think of one. Um, 
Oh, oh, uh, I would say it's um, the best one is. Uh, <laughs> OK, I, I will I will recommend this with an asterisk. Uh, the, the song is a little bit profane, uh, but <laughs> it's called um, uh, uh, The Seasons Upon Us by Dropkick Murphy, uh, <laughs> which is a like a punk rock Irish folk band. <laughs> and <laughs> and the, the Dropkick like, Murphys are pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're also the ones who do shipping off to Boston uh which it, you probably have heard even if you don't know the band um <laughs> but yeah so so dropkick murphy is great um and uh their their song the seasons upon us might be my favorite uh non-christian holiday song with the asterisk by it with the asterisk <laughs> don't listen when there are children around fair point well as as for the worst um i i honestly have a little bit of a cop out here too um like you did for the best, but I hate literally almost every one that isn't Carol of the Bells. I hate almost all non-Christian Christmas music, which is not like me being a bah humbug. They just aren't, it's just not good music. <laughs> it's just objectively not. Um, like, so yeah, even like good old songs, I guess like, you know, I'm referring mostly to like contemporary stuff, but even if it's like a newer rendition of a good older songs, like Sleigh Ride, that's a great one. Uh, the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, that's a good song, you know. But w when they're done in like the modern renditions, there's usually a lot of fake jazz, like uh, just not really quite jazz, not super like, I don't know, not very soulful. And it's just, oh man, I just can't, I can't stand it. But if I had to pick one, it would definitely be Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney. And I'm, that's not a unique opinion. Like lots of people hate that song. Um, so yeah, it's just grating and awful in every way. Love Paul McCartney. Uh, absolutely love him. Love the Beatles. Uh, oh, I also hate the Michael Jackson, I Saw a Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, like the one with the Jackson 5. It's funny because Michael Jackson and like Paul McCartney are two of the greatest talents of all time, but their Christmas songs are absolute garbage. Um, I can't stand like the saccharine, like I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. Ha ha. It's actually daddy. Like it's just so corny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I just can't. I can't. I love you, Paul. Um, but wonderful Christmas time. I, I cringe every time I've, I've read that he makes more money off that song than any other song. Uh, ever because it gets played all christmas time everywhere and he doesn't have to like share royalties with any other beatles because he wrote it when he he was in his solo career and that's just sad because it's clearly the worst song he ever wrote <laughs> but uh anyways what about you uh i would say the worst non-christian holiday song has to be christmas shoes yeah it's garbage <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're right you might be you might be more right than me on this one <laughs> yep it's yeah non-christian right there christmas shoes terrible song <laughs> can it even be explained like why it's bad if anyone doesn't know the song just go listen to it <laughs> yeah okay we will also link that one in the show notes as well and uh i i feel like it's just on its face clear why it's a bad song yeah it yeah some things are just self-evident to all all decent people self-attesting self-attesting self like the authorship of hebrews we don't know who wrote it but all true christians know it's scripture right <laughs> and so in the same way you know all true christians hate christmas shoes it's just <laughs> <laughs> we probably spouted more heresy <laughs> in this episode than all the others combined <laughs> 
hey getting us ready for for confession sunday morning amen that's you know <laughs> i'm pretty sure paul had something to say about that in Romans six which we've been you know talking a lot about lately but... <laughs> all people with any sense stopped listening to this podcast 20 minutes ago <laughs> Yeah, congratulations, listener, for making it to the end of this podcast. We thank you for listening. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked anything you heard today, have questions you think we can answer, uh, you can send them to the john 315 podcast at gmail.com. That's the john 315 podcast at gmail.com thank you for listening <laughs>